As we'll see uh, later today, uh, it's the 50th anniversary of Rothbard's uh, America's Great Depression, and it's also the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's and uh, Anna Jacob Schwartz, A Monetary History of the United States. The latter was uh, enormously influential uh, in economic history, especially monetary history in the uh, general mainstream interpretation of the Great Depression. Uh, Rothbard's Rothbard did not receive the same attention. Um, as anyone who's sort of read um, either book, uh, you can tell that they're, they're different. Uh, <laughs> if you read Rothbard's first, just, just, to, just to look at a couple titles in the book, you, you look at his part two, and it's called The Inflationary Boom from 1921 to 1929. Uh, you look at, and, and so Rothbard, you, you read, and he says, all right, the 1920s was a bad decade for monetary policy. The Federal Reserve was very inflationary. It tried to increase the money supply for various reasons, and uh, this, this was one of the contributing factors to the Great Depression. Uh, you read Freeman and Schwartz, and the, tam- the same title for that period, the 1920s, they call it the high tide of the, of the reserve system, 1921 to uh, 29. And for them, it was the, a great, if not the greatest decade for Federal Reserve monetary policy. Price level was stable. Output growth was, uh, was good. Unemployment was low. The stock market boom, there's actually some papers that say there really wasn't a stock market boom. Uh, it was really, there was a slight recession that was coming on in 1928. The Federal Reserve screwed up by raising the discount rate, and that's what sort of caused the Great Depression. And then the Federal Reserve didn't do anything in, um, in, the, great, in, the, in the Great Depression. And, um, and so, yeah, so for Freeman and Schwartz, the 1920s was a good decade for monetary policy. And you can also see uh, this similar sort of uh, vast difference. Uh, there's a series of articles between uh, Joseph uh, Salerno and Richard Timberlake from 1999 to uh, 2000 in the uh, in the Freeman, and they uh, they, they they sort of um, it's, it's the same type of deal where one of them's telling one of these stories and the other is telling the other. I'll let you figure out which one uh, is, is telling uh, which story. Um, okay, so why the difference? Um, now, the reason I'm concentrating here, there's, you know, obviously one of uh, Rothbard used Austrian business cycle theory. Milton Friedman did not. There's definitions on the money supply, on inflation, whether or not to be related to the money supply or prices. And there's uh, relative prices versus the price level. But I'm going to concentrate on here on the view on uh, Reserve, Federal Reserve credit outstanding. And uh, for this, this, is, this represents the loans and investments that the Fed in the 1920s had to its, um, its member banks. So Rothbard said that the Fed actively tried to increase controlled reserves. And so the thesis of this working paper is that Rothbard is right. And uh, I'll try and build on his analysis that he gives in, the Great De- in, in, um, in America's Great Depression and also sort of try to provide an updated Rothbardian analysis of this, uh, of this time period and, you know, contrast it with, um, you know, recent interpretations because obviously with the Great Recession, there's been a, a huge new research and emphasis on the Great Depression. So in Freeman and Schwartz, on the other hand, said the Fed stabilized Federal Reserve credit outstanding, or could even be considered deflationary at times. And um, they they do mention this, and this is this is that's the view supported uh, by most monetary, if not all, monetary economists. So all right, here's a picture from Freeman and Schwartz of Federal Reserve credit outstanding from 1921 to 1929, roughly right before the uh, uh, you know uh, right before October. And so in June 1921, which is also when Rothbard starts, Federal Reserve credit was roughly $2 billion. Uh, on October 23rd, right before the uh, stock market crash, it was $1.37 billion. So there's a decline in $720 million 
uh, roughly uh, 34%. So you're, you're thinking, what's, what's Rothbard talking about? I mean, you just simply look at it and, um, you know, if you start from 1921, it, it was deflationary. If you just start right at the bottom of that sharp decrease, all right, it looks like it, they stabilized it and it's slightly increased at the end. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not looking uh, – so, so this, is, um, th- this is sort of supporting the, the Friedman and Schwartz view. So just to sort of go into what Federal Reserve Credit Outstanding was at the time, it, it, it consisted of bills bought, which were acceptances. They were used to uh, guarantee payment of goods in transit, uh, mostly used internationally. The Fed sort of created this um, market in the 1920s um, by sub- deliberately subsidizing uh, the by deliberately subsidizing it. Flow very minor, unimportant. It's just from the temporary increase in reserves to uh, the check, the way the checks were cleared. There were government securities, open market operations. This is, you know, this is all what we know the Federal Reserve does now. And then there were bills discounted, which, and this is the big difference uh, as I'll sort of go into how they view Federal Reserve credit. So to go into bills discounted, this is a simple picture I'll go into later. Uh, it consisted of uh, advances and rediscounts. Advances were when the Federal Reserve, I mean, the member banks would basically borrow money from the government and hold their government securities as collateral. This is primarily what the, what the discount window is used for now, even when it is used. It's very, it's not used that much. Rediscounts, or what should really be called rediscounts, were really what the, the discount window was used for back then. And this is when a commercial bank would rediscount eligible paper at the Fed. So the way this would work, just to sort of go into how commercial bank um, thing, it worked back then, a borrower, the, the stick figure, would have a promissory note, you know, such as commercial paper, saying he'll pay $1,100 in one year. And at, at say, a going interest rate of 10%, the, the Newman Bank, that's me, um, would, would, discount, would, 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 you know, would, would discount it and say, okay, I'll give you $1,000 now. And then the bank, you know, we'd have to pay it back and it'd just be, you know, it's just a simple loan like that. So traditionally, in the Bank of England, and what the Federal Reserve are going to later was actually modeled after, um, it was supposed to be a penalty rate. So this is uh, echoing uh, Walter Baggett in uh, 1873, uh, his uh, walk on Lombard Street, you know, the policy of lend freely at a, at a high rate. So it's sort of, sort of supposed to separate the insolvent banks from the illiquid banks. So if there's a run on the bank and the Newman Bank, you know, let's say the, in the, the same day, it's really unlucky, uh, the Newman Bank, you know, I, I got to get reserves to meet depositors, so I'm going to discount it at the Fed. And let's say the, the, the discount rate is 15%. So he's going to discount it again, and I'm going to get $950. So it's less than the 1000 I started with, but at least it's something. So it, it, it's, the, it's the idea that, all right, it's a penalty rate. It's a penalty. So you're not going to borrow from the Fed in normal times because you, you, it's, it's higher than you know, prime commercial paper, and, and you're not going to be able to rediscount it again. All right, but let's say it was a non-penalty rate, which, uh, which happened in the 20s and, and, and for most of the Fed's founding. So then I could discount it at the Fed, and the Fed would discount it, and they'd give me uh, $1,050 now. So I get a $50 increase in reserves. So I'm pretty happy, um, you know, because now I can lend that out. I just, got, I just got $50 more. Let's say, you know, this is at a 5% interest rate. Um, and uh, so, so then in this scenario, banks can borrow from the Fed for profit. Because they're actually making money when they borrow from the Fed. They're, they're getting, they're, they're, when they rediscount for the second time, they're able to get um, additional reserves. 
So the, the idea here is, and this is what Rothbard uh, touched on, is when the discount rate is less than prime commercial paper, and prime is just relatively, if, if not the market, you know, very riskless, the discount rate is easy. It's no longer a penalty rate. And uh, during the Fed, since um, it also, uh, I might have time to go into this, it also implicitly allowed continuous borrowing. The policy is not really lend freely at a high rate, it's, it's lend freely at a low rate. So Rothbard's insight, and, I, and this is this is this is what this is the kicker. This is what distinguishes him from Freeman and Schwartz, at least when they view these controlled reserve figures, is that when banks repaid, it was uncontrolled and against the wishes of the Fed, because the banks could still, on the net, be in debt to the Fed by discounting additional bills, and but they're deliberately choosing to shun a profitable opportunity. So Rothbard splits it down the middle, and he says, "Okay, bill is discounted. It's going to be controlled then." Because the Fed is choosing to lend money, they could not. They could decide not to discount it. But when bills were repaid, it was uncontrolled. So it was like if the public decided to take money out of the bank, their banks, an increase in currency in the hand of the public. That's that's uncontrolled. That, that the, the Fed, the Fed can't deliver. The Fed can't directly influence that, just like it could by buying government securities. So when we look at it like this way, then controlled reserves increased by one point seven seven five billion dollars over this period, whereas uncontrolled reserves decreased, uh, and this is solely from bills being repaid, by $2.495 billion. So that's where you get the 720 decline. And the, the, the sharp decrease at the beginning in 1920-1921, there, there was a massive amount of bills being repaid, even when this discount rate was extremely easy, if, if not the biggest differential uh, during this period. So just a uh, brief history of the penalty rate, and this comes from Alan Meltzer's a uh, monetary history of the, the Federal Reserve. The Fed, I'll uh, go through this quickly. The Fed was des- originally designed to have a penalty rate. It conflicted with Fed Treasury goals. There was a mild 1914 recession. Fed wanted to increase bank earnings. And then the Treasury needed to finance the war. So they pretty much coerced the Fed. Uh, there's an interesting story behind this. I can't really go into this. Into setting a preferential rate on discounting government securities. Just to get banks to buy the government securities. Post-war, the Fed wants to return to a penalty rate. The Treasury does not. 1920 to 1921, during that recession, Benjamin Strong and the Fed, uh, they won a penalty rate. Benjamin Strong, he's the famous central banker in the 1920s. At the beginning, he in the early 1920s, he, he wanted to liquidate. He wanted the penalty rate. However, Treasury, president, the presidency, uh, Congress do not. And Strong and the Fed, they quietly dropped this notion of the penalty rate. Uh, they, the Treasury, uh, they, everyone wanted the political considerations, especially uh, upcoming congressional elections, uh, they wanted in their agricultural districts, they wanted uh, low rates. So here's just a, a quick quote. This comes from Meltzer. Uh, he's talking to Norman, uh, Montague Norman, who was the head of the Bank of England at the time, and I'll just sort of go through it really quickly. He continued to favor a penalty rate in principle, and he said money market conditions hardly justified making a further reduction. However, he said classical methods were, quote, not always the wisest, and there were political considerations brought about by the change of administration. So as we all know, when it comes to government, it all comes down to politics. Um, and the, the idea of the penalty rate was was dropped. So uh, I was able to go back into Federal Reserve um, uh, interest rate, and I was able to get this data. And so here, the blue line is the uh, the discount rate, and the the red line is uh, commercial paper rate uh, from the four to six month. And uh, the average di- di- difference is half a percent, which I mean, it wasn't as different as big as I made it last time, but that certainly provides an opportunity for profit. And uh, so other explanations, I, I really wanted to get some time uh, to, go, to go to this. So this is the, the scissors effect, and uh, that's what sort of Freeman and Schwartz call it, and this is the Reifler-Burgess doctrine. That's what Meltzer calls it. Uh, there's a picture of scissors. 
Um, and it, it, it helps explain this. So, so they noticed after the uh, 1920, 1920 recession, there's an inverse relationship between government securities bought or sold and bills discounted or repaid. So the idea is that if the Fed were to buy government securities, banks would use some of this increase in securities to pay their debt to the to, to pay their debt to the Fed. So you know you might read this as okay if you if you lend someone if you give someone money they're going to spend some of that money and, and repay their debt. So the Fed could influence bills repaid through open market operations. And so this is sort of contrary to what Rothbard was talking about. So maybe it's not completely uncontrolled like he was like he was saying. Well, and just to sort of quickly go some problems with the scissors effect. It relied on banks not borrowing for profit, when in reality the discount rate really was a lend freely at a low rate. In 1928, they, they're, they're what, over moral suasion, uh, some dealing with the stock market, they, they did try and clamp down on continuous borrowing, but it didn't work. Throughout the 1920s, they turned the, they turned the, they, they, they turned the other way, and they still let it happen. Banks were still ultimately in control, because despite the increase in reserves, they still could, on the net, increase or maintain borrowing. And uh, this, is, this is what happened, um, especially in 1927, when the Fed bought government securities, banks increased their bills discounted. And this was completely against what the doctrine would say and the proponents of it, they were sort of quiet on this issue. Another more important thing is that during these giant spurts of bills being repaid, bills repaid often began before, not after the increase in securities. So in uh, June 1921 from the, to December 1921, Bills discounted declined 34%, while government securities uh, remained the same. And so this is before, uh, this was even when the, the Fed had this policy, but this was, this was before, uh, um, the, so the, the scissors effect, it wasn't, the idea was that first government securities would increase and then bills would be repaid, when it, often it was the opposite. So, um, the conclusion uh, is that Rothbard's view of the discount rate is one of the main differences between his and Freeman's account of a Federal Reserve monetary policy in the 1920s, and I happen to think he's right. So thank you for your time. Thank you.